We're, uh, as we read earlier in John chapter 1, uh, I know some of you are here as relatives, uh, here just for the weekend, but for the past. This will be the third Sunday looking at uh, John chapter 1. First week we looked at the first five verses, and then last week went through verse 12 and 13, and I'll kind of begin there and see how far we get uh, this morning. Um, he was born in 1879, and as Parents were Jewish, born in Germany, uh, Albert Einstein. In the early years of his life, his, his parents were very concerned uh, about his, his intellectual ability because he appeared to be a very slow learner. Even his teachers were concerned because the other students were going at a, a much faster pace, and yet he, he was a, appeared to be a slow learner. But in reality, he was not a slow learner. It's just that he focused so deeply on what he was learning, and he thought about the simple things. So as you or I might hear, two plus two equals four, okay, I got that, now let's move on. He would think very deeply about, now why does two plus two equals four? And he would delve into all the things surrounding that, and it was misinterpreted as being a, a slow learner. But it was this simplicity of thought this ability to think deeply and to probe simple things that allowed him to probe what we call the secrets of the universe. And he did that more deeply than anyone else before him or even since then. He received the Nobel Prize in 1921 for his work in theoretical physics. He began teaching here in America at Princeton in 1934. He became an American citizen in 1940. Whether we realize it or not, his scientific equations have an impact on us every day. For Einstein, uh, he was the first to teach and to explain that there is unimaginable power and force within the smallest, what would appear to be harmless things in everyday life. And as an expression of these massive forces, he perfected what is the best known equation in physics. The equation is E equals MC squared. Now what that means, that equation, what, what it means is that the energy that is present within matter is equal to the mass of that matter multiplied by the speed of light squared. Now we know the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. So simple mathematics, mathematics then can lead us to understand that that any given mass within it then has an enormous power. It was discovered that the, that the metal uranium, which is a real unusual metal, under proper circumstances, it could be caused to release its atoms with a massive force. And so we don't have to exercise too strenuous an imagination to, to see that an entity like a proton which is traveling in a circle at the speed of light. Here, I'll illustrate it for you. <laughs> this proton's going at 186,000 miles per second. You can imagine then that if that proton were released off of that orbit, then it would go in a straight line and it would devastate everything in its path. And of course, the proper combination to produce that effect was what was shown to the world with the blast at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
What's interesting is that today, most people do not understand that theory, the theory of relativity, and how such force can be generated in a nuclear bomb. But how much can the typical person understand? And Einstein wrestled with this. And he wrote, anyone who has ever tried to present a very abstract scientific subject in a popular manner knows that it's very difficult to attempt to do such. Either, he went on to say, either he succeeds in being understandable but concealing the core of the problem by offering to the reader a superficial aspect or vague illusions, that's one end, and if he does that, he deceives the reader by giving the illusion of comprehension, or he gives an expert scientific explanation of the problem, but it's in such a fashion that the untrained reader is unable to understand what the person's talking about. So he desired, and he went on to write, it is of great importance that the general public, rather than just a few scientists, be given an opportunity to experience the efforts and the results of scientific research. Now, that is a, a very wordy way to say it's extremely difficult to write on a complicated subject in popular terms, lest it becomes too superficial. And that is precisely what we have in John chapter 1. That's what God does in this revelation through John. In, in John 1, 1, it's very abstract. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we go, whoa, whoa, what is, how can something be with and it at the same time? And in the beginning, this is before Genesis 1, 1. This is before the creation of all that is. Very abstract, difficult to understand. But by verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of God. Now, now it's understandable. So it moves from great abstraction at the beginning of John's gospel, that chapter 1, to where by the time we get to verse 14, things are becoming clearer and clearer and easier to understand. Quick review of where we've been, very quick. So I mentioned he begins before Genesis 1-1 with the creation, and he refers to the Word, to the Son of God. The Word was understood by some ways by the Hebrews, a different way by the Greeks, but both agreed that the Word uh, is, implies uh, communication, that there's the idea of beginnings, and God communicates through that. And then last week, if you were here, we looked in verses 6 through 8 about John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he had been foretold by Isaiah and by Malachi. In fact, the, the last, within the last chapters of the Old Testament, we have where Malachi in chapter 3 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And so there's the end of the Old Testament. There's 400 years of silence. And then onto the scene comes John the Baptist in fulfillment of what had been written there in the last book of the Old Testament. And then in verses 9 through 11, we saw that Jesus is light. And the themes of light and darkness run through Scripture. It's more than physical light and darkness. It's spiritual. The deeds of evil are then and now 
committed typically in darkness. Our natures prefer to be in darkness rather than in the light. We try to hide from God. But what happened when the light came? It came, and in verses 9 through 11, it said the world did not recognize the light, did not recognize him, speaking of Jesus, and even his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. I mentioned that you to receive him means more than just knowing about Jesus. I mentioned having a gift, and you could know about the gift, and you could say, I believe it's real, I believe it's true, I believe that it's valuable, and I believe it's offered to me. But until you receive it, as it says in verse 12, it's not yours. And we can deceive ourselves to thinking, well, I've, I've received Christ when really, when really we just know about him. And, and we've not truly re- received him by putting our faith in him as our redeemer. And we kind of ended there, and so we come to verse 14, as I mentioned, where God moves from the abstract to the comprehensible. The word became flesh, and that's the word we talk about incarnation. Do you know, do you know what the word incarnation means? You know what I did the other day? It's, you know, further evidence, I'm, I ought to be embarrassed about this. I, I looked up how many kinds of chili there are. <laughs> now, there's a reason. I'm going to tell you why in a moment. Thankfully, Barb cooks. <laughs> I'm not the one trying to do this, but I was looking at 12 different recipes for chili. And there's a, just on this one little, one little paragraph, it said, well, there's white chicken chili, there's vegetarian chili, there's Cincinnati chili, famous. There's Texas chili, there's turkey chili, there's black bean chili, there's chili dogs. That was even part of that food group, chili dogs. But then, you know this, if you're walking through the store, chili con carne, speak to me. What does that mean? With what? Meat, carne, meat, flesh, incarnation. He became a man. He became flesh. Now, next time you're walking through the grocery store and you see that on the label, I want you to think, oh, that's the incarnation. Christ became a man. That's what it's talking about in verse 14, carne. The Westminster Confession puts it this way. How did Christ... Being the Son of God become man. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body, not a false body, not a phantom body, and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance and born of her yet without sin. So in the incarnation, I don't remember who said this, but uh, I wrote it down. In the incarnation, deity funneled itself down into humanity. That's what happened. And so in verse 14, the word became flesh. It's just referring there to Christ, Christ incarnation. In every age, there are those who deny the deity of Jesus, but there are also those who deny the humanity of Jesus. They deny that he was truly human, that he was truly a man like we would see, flesh and blood, because he was not from eternity past. It, when John 1.1, when it's referring to the Word, that is pre-incarnation. That is the Son of God, but we don't even call it Jesus because he was given the name Jesus when he was born. Now, the truth of his deity and the truth of his humanity are all through Scripture. In the Old Testament, we so often read from Isaiah at Christmas time. But the twofold nature of Christ is described all through Isaiah. And we come to chapter 9, and 
in Isaiah and the verse that we hear sung often. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So here are two very important verbs about the coming of the Son of God. One, he is born, and second, he is given. In the same sentence there in Isaiah's prophecy, he's born as a child, he is born, but as a son of God, he is given. Those two aspects. When the disciples were crossing the, the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum, which was Jesus' home base of ministry there on the, the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, and they were going to the land of the Gadarenes, Jesus is exhausted from the day's activities. He's asleep in the boat. A storm arises. They're, they're very frightened. Even these seasoned fishermen are frightened. And they wake him up saying, Lords, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he still the storm. So we see the combination of his deity and his humanity right there. What's more human than being exhausted and going to sleep, even on a tossing boat? But what could be more divine than speaking and stilling the waters there in this storm? on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples exclaim, it tells us in Matthew 8, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Well, he was the God-man. Nothing could be more human than how Jesus died on the cross, his death, the torturous suffering he went through, but nothing could be more divine than the darkening of the sky while he was on that, that cross the tearing of the veil in the temple, the opening of the graves of the saints buried near Jerusalem, and the triumphant reading of the tomb on the first Easter morning when the women arrive there and the tomb is empty. We see his humanity and his emotions, his compassion, his pity. In Mark chapter 8, a large crowd is gathered and they had nothing to eat and they're far away from being able to go to a place to get food. And Jesus tells his disciples, I have compassion on these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And, and he had compassion on them. And we see in Matthew 9, he went through the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He's moved. That's humanity in him. We see his grief and indignation in John 12, how he grieves at the death of his friend Lazarus and the effects of death on, on Lazarus' sisters and all the people there and the devastation, and he, he weeps over that. In Matthew 23, he calls the religious leaders hypocrites and serpents. We see his humanity and how he did that. We see that he experienced joy and gladness. And he's like us in temptations and in sufferings. In, in Mark 4, when... Pardon me, Matthew 4, when he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness uh, to be tempted by the devil, and the devil tempts him in his hunger to turn stones into bread, a second to test God by throwing himself off a high pinnacle. And he, he was tempted like you and me, and he, he suffered emotionally, he suffered spiritually. Jesus knew what it was like to lose an earthly father. Joseph is never mentioned after the early chapters of, Jesus, of, of the Gospels. By the time he begins his public ministry, from all indications, Joseph has died. He and his brothers and sisters knew, his half-brothers and sisters, knew what it was like to lose uh, a father figure like that. 
So he suffered grief. Often we, I was in a church service once and the pastor mentioned something about uh, alcoholism. And after the service was over, I was with a man who was an alcoholic, and he said, who is he to stand up there and say stuff like that? He doesn't know what it's like to wake up each morning and have your hands shaking like this. And I thought, well, I thought to myself, I didn't say anything. That's, that's true, but if somebody has to go through every sin that's out there to speak to it, they won't be qualified to preach anymore. <laughs> Sorry, that's how my mind works. But the other is, we do have, we do have, a Savior who understands everything we're going through. And that's why it tells us in Hebrews that being him, himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We're all tempted day to day in various things, and we pray to a Redeemer who understands. You don't have to explain to him how hard it is. But we may say that for our benefit, like the psalmist, but he understands. So by means of the incarnation, he came to know all of life, trials, joys, sufferings, losses, gains, losses, temptations, griefs, frustrations, pain. He knew what it was to be thirsty, to be tired, to be exhausted. He knows what it's like to be mocked by a crowd. He knows what it's like to be falsely accused. Isn't it hard when we're accused, but especially falsely accused, and the person accusing you knows it's false, and they still say that? He was an encouragement uh, in prayer. Verse 14 said the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. This is a key term because it's also a term that can mean tabernacled, can literally mean he pitched his tent. The tabernacle of Israel, if you've studied that in Sunday school or seen uh, drawings of it, if you've got a study Bible, you see the tabernacle. It was a yeah, first there was a tent of meeting, and then, then there was the tabernacle, and it had very specific dimensions. It was like a tent set up, and, and uh, there was certain decor, and certain furniture for that, and then there was this uh, a, a fabric wall, you might say, that rectangular shape that was around it, and, and here's what's interesting. You know where they were to set that up? Where was the, when they were in the wilderness, where was the tabernacle set up? Kids, any small kids, can you speak to me? Do you remember where they were to put it? Anybody? In the middle. In the middle of the camp. The tent of meeting had been outside the camp, and that was where God's glory would shine. But the tabernacle was in the middle of the camp so that God's people would know that he was there. That's the same concept here in verse 14 where it said he dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled, he pitched his tent. So in the Old Testament, they, if they wanted to know about God, it was present at the tabernacle. But now it's in Christ himself, he came. And then in verse 17, John moves from, from that to talking about the law. It says, for the law was given through Moses, speaking there of the Ten Commandments, and a lot of the case laws and specific things that flowed out of that. But the law was given through Moses, What's he mean by that? Well, Moses went up on Mount Sinai, and God had inscribed on stone tablets uh, his word that revealed his will, and he gave that 
Jesus comes and he's the expression of God. We look at God's law and it shows us the character of God, that God wants to be worshiped in him only, to have no other gods before him, um, and so forth that's shown through the... But then we come to the life of Christ and he's, he shows us all about God. The meaning behind all of this is you and I matter to God. Again, I don't know who said it, but I wrote it down long ago. If God had wanted to communicate to cows, he would have become a cow. If he had wanted to communicate to ants, he would have become an ant. If God had wanted to communicate to dogs, he would have become a dog. But he wanted to communicate to human beings, so he became one of us, a human being. And so now we can look at Jesus and say, oh, that's how God wants me to live. That's what God is like. That he's not just some impersonal force in the sky or what we want him to be or make him to be but he's specific. And the reason God wants us to know this is you matter to God. Your plans matter to God, your hopes, your dreams. And the one who knows you best loves you most. That ought to bring us comfort. The one who knows me the best, better than my wife, better than my kids, better than my closest friends, he loves me the most. I want to close with this. It's also something, this happened about the time Albert Einstein was born in the late 1870s. Dwight L. Moody was the Billy Graham of his day in the late 1800s. He would speak at large gatherings. Uh, he would preach. He was an evangelist here in America. He also went to, over to the UK. And he was accompanied by a very famous singer named Ira Sankey, I-R-A unusual name, but Ira Sankey, who apparently had a wonderful voice. So one night, it was Christmas Eve. It was Christmas Eve in 1876, and Ira Sankey was on a steamboat traveling up the Delaware River. It was a cold night, but it was a bright light. The moon was out, and there were a lot of passengers on that boat, and some people recognized Ira Sankey and said, hey, let's get him to sing. It was a quiet night on this boat going up, steaming up the, the river. And so they said, please, please sing. And he leaned against one of the big funnels on the boat. And he, he wanted to sing a Christmas carol. But somehow the words of another hymn that he had learned as a child overrode that decision. And so he sang, Savior like a shepherd lead us. da 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 well, everyone on the deck listened very intently as he, he sang this in his very gifted voice. And, but they also listened to the words of the hymn. The song ended, the crowd began to just go about on the deck. And a man steps forward and he says to Mr. Sankey, did you ever serve in the Union Army? And Sankey answered yes. And he said, uh, I served in the spring of 1860. And the man said, do you remember if by any chance you were doing picket duty, fence duty on a, on a bright moonlight lit night in 1862? And Sankey thought, and he said, yes, I did. I remember. And the man said, I did too, but I was in the Confederate Army. And when I saw you standing, leaning against that post here, and I heard you sing, it took my mind back to the night I saw you. I was hidden in the shadows 
with my musket away from the fence and I saw you standing by a fence post. And I said, that fellow will never get away from here alive. And I raised my musket and I took aim, completely hidden in the shadows. And then you walked into the full moonlight. And at the very instant I was about to pull the trigger, you started singing that song. Savior like a shepherd lead us. And I took my finger off the trigger and I said, I'll wait. I'll wait until he finishes this song, and then I'll kill him. And you sang, and you reached the place where it says, We are thine, do thou befriend us, be the guardian of our way. And I began to think back to my childhood. And I thought about my mother, and she loved God. And she had sung that song to me many times when I was young, but she died all too soon, and otherwise I think my life would have been very different. And at the end of the song, I could not raise my musket again. And it was impossible for me to take aim, though you were standing right there in the bright moonlight, a perfect target. And then I thought of the Lord, and I thought, and I looked at you, and I said, the Lord was able to save that man from certain death. And any God that can do that must surely be great and mighty. And Ira Sankey threw his arms around this man's neck, and the two became close friends. How does that happen? Well, it happens because of verse 12 and 13. He gave the right to become the children of God. And though, so these men who had been enemies at one time through Christ now were brothers in Christ. You know, we're not just members of a church. We're members of a family. And so we're not just, well, that person, that man or woman is another church member, a fellow member. No, he's my brother or my sister. We're adopted in the family of God through Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for sending your son that he became a true man and lived a real life. And he now, when we are tempted, can understand. We're grateful that we can approach you through him. And even this very moment, he intercedes for us at your right hand. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.